Welcome, everybody. So glad you're here. I'm Ross, the teaching pastor here, and grateful that we get to be together this morning. Thanks for some flexibility. I know just within the schedule and uh, our gathering times, adding an early service, we had some people uh, attend that one so we could free up some seats at the later services, not having River Tree South available this Sunday uh, has caused us to be a little more flexible, which I just think is just part of what we're going to be dealing with over the next couple months as we kind of move towards and maneuver towards launching a new campus downtown and opening that up. And again, seeing people shift and getting involved. And uh, there's a lot happening here. And so if you're a guest with us, haven't been a part of River Tree before, just know that we're really glad you're here. Uh, We're making our way through the gospel of Mark, and we've been using Mark uh, really for some time to kind of give us a a kind of a, a track on Sunday days to kind of follow God's word and to understand more of just who Jesus is, which is really the, the, the large question that Mark's gospel continues to offer out is this, who is Jesus? And so we're going to look at a, a passage today that uh, is challenging in, in a lot of ways. And so uh, I'm really glad you're here because I think there's some things in it for us to really glean from and learn a lot more about just who Jesus is and, and, and who we are to him. I will say, as you turn to Mark chapter 13, I have I've realized this about myself that I've gotten older, that I have come to appreciate good fruit. I don't know if anybody else has noticed this about their own life, uh, but as a kid, I could really take or leave fruit, uh, uh, eat it, not eat it. But there's something about like good in-season fruit now that if I have, if I have a perfect watermelon like I can have a moment, like I could really just kind of settle in uh, a honey crisp apple. Uh, like there's just a lot of fruit. So, so we, we've been eating more fruit in my house. I've just noticed that over the years. And I grabbed a banana off the counter and ate it just a few days ago. And it, uh, it was deceptive. Like there was something about the exterior of the banana that looked amazing. It looked perfect. But when I, when I tasted it, I realized this is not right. Like something, something has gone, gone bad with this banana. And I, I actually had a hunch. I asked my wife, I said, Jennifer, um, did you buy this banana at this particular store? And she said she did. Like I knew, like we don't buy bananas from that store. Like they, that, that's just, you know, it's a risk. It's like a poker game. You're buying bananas at that particular store. And so I said, can we always just buy bananas from this place? She said, yes. There is something about when the exterior looks good, but what's on the inside fails. That is part of what Jesus is dealing with in Mark chapter 13. Jesus is leaving the temple. And as he leaves the temple, there is this sense that we've been reading, even through the last couple chapters of Mark, that the exterior of the temple looks amazing. It is busy. It is active. There are people from all over the world coming and filling the courts. But Jesus has been incredibly critical of the temple. That's not just the, the way it's outwardly functioning, but there's something inside at its core that has turned, that has gone bad. And, and this, this, this part of Jesus' caution and concern that you're going to read in Mark chapter 13 about the temple is important for us to just understand the scope of what Jesus is really addressing and, and the place of the temple within the life of Israel. Know this, that in Jerusalem, the temple took up about 25% of the geography of the land space within Jerusalem. So it was massive. And, and Jerusalem really wasn't a city with a temple. Jerusalem was a temple with kind of extensions of life, kind of moving its way into the suburbs, into the community. And you realize that 
the, the temple was more than just a place of religious observance. Like it was a place where people would come. Um, it, 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 was a, it was a place for economics. It was a place to talk politics. It was a place and kind of a hub for artistry and creativity. Like it was the center. And, and what the temple had been for centuries, this place, this symbol of God's presence with his people, the symbol of God's restorative work, bringing his people back from exile. Now Herod is now adorning and building the temple out with such magnificence and such splendor. The temple has become the pride of every Jew, the pride of every Israelite. And, and it's this dynamic that Jesus is starting to become kind of critical of where the temple itself, the reverence for the temple, the glory of the temple is starting to compete with the very reverence and honor that is due God. Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes about the temple. He says that it was um, amazing to behold. In fact, so much of the exterior was covered in gold. And what wasn't covered in gold was covered in this polished white stone. And from a distance, when the sun hit it, the rays of the sun would reflect off the temple and, and the Mount of Jerusalem would look as if it were snow covered. It would, it would beam and it would reflect and it was white. And there was this, um, this blurring of the lines that some historians write about between heaven and earth, that the way the temple was built, the way it touched the sky, the way the observances, the way the religious expression happened there, that there was this moment where you just had this sense of the heaven and the earth were close to one another. Uh, it was powerful in its, in its presence. And, and what you began to realize too is the, the, the architecture, it was a, it was a wonder. Uh, there were stones within this temple that were 40 feet long. They were the size of train boxcars. And, and the, the columns leading into the temple had such ornate gold kind of clusters of jewels that this kind of ornate grapevine made of gold and jewelry, uh, these clusters were the size of people. And so I just want you to, to see the magnificence, magnificence of this place. I, I want you to kind of catch how wonderful it is so that when Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple, when they're exiting, after Jesus has spent days there kind of teaching and debating and being tested by the religious leaders, the disciples walk out and they are, as any of us would be, in awe of this place. And they make this comment to Jesus about, look how amazing the temple is. And then Jesus goes into a, a long warning and a prophetic warning about what kind of judgment is going to happen to the temple because what is inside the temple has turned. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And I want to try to read through a good part of this chapter here. So, uh, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. 
Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must be first preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those, because those will be the days of distress unequaled from beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At the time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So Mark 13, in this section that we're looking at here, has been described by many as one of the most difficult passages to interpret of what Jesus is saying and what is particular to what Jesus is saying to the disciples and what do we begin to look prophetically towards the future. There's something happening in this passage. And if you begin to just read on this passage, I'm offering you, you're going to just get a hundred different interpretations and viewpoints of all of what's going on here. And so my goal is, is to, to do the best I can with a few minutes to try to say, what is Jesus saying? And, and then make some applications for us of, of from what he's saying, what can we be benefited by? How can we leave here and better understand God's word? So Jesus tells the disciples really one of the most amazing things that they have ever heard. One of the things that is truly unbelievable unbelievable for them. And that is the destruction of the temple, that the temple really is going to be undone. That the most beautiful building, the kind of the, the heart of the nation, the, the, the kind of the, the epicenter of faith and politics and economics and art, all of that, it, it's going to end. And as he says this to them, the disciples then circle back to Jesus and say, tell us more. Like, what do you mean? Like, when is this going to happen? What, what do we need to do to kind of know that it's happening and prepare ourselves and to be ready for that? 
And so Jesus then begins to say, you're going to hear things like war, rumors of war. You're going to see things begin to happen around you, earthquakes, famines. Like these things that are going to happen, they're not the end, but they're, they're the beginning of the end. These things are going to be part of the experience as we move towards the climactic finish here. That God is doing something. These things are part of like birth pains. And Jesus takes that, that, that illustration that many of you are familiar with of what it is like to have a child. And especially if it's your first one. Kind of everything that goes into that moment, the anticipation and the worry and the concern. And you know, Jennifer and I, with our first, we made multiple trips to the hospital uh, to be told, mm, not yet. You know, but there's something happening, right? She feels something. I saw something move right across her stomach. It was terrible. And they're like, not yet, not yet. Go back, come back in another week. And this, this sense of kind of hopes, and dreams of a new child, and yet all the worry, all the caution, understanding this, like to have a child within this culture, within this day, without the medical improvements, like having a child was a, a life and death situation for the mother and the baby. And so Jesus is kind of inviting the disciples to lean in, like this is going to be a difficult time. This is going to be a trying time for you. And it's going to be very similar to kind of what it is to be in labor and the labor doesn't mean it's the end, but there's the end is coming. And so wars and famines and rumors of wars and nations rising up against nations, not yet. You'll be taken away. You'll be arrested. You'll be beaten, imprisoned. You'll be brought before kings and governors to share the gospel, to be witnesses to what you've seen and what you've heard and who Jesus is because of me. And Jesus says, because of me, things are going to get hard for you. Like there's this period of time coming where things are going to get difficult. And I don't want you to get confused. I don't want you to be kind of uh, lost in the circumstances when things become challenging, when the temple gets destroyed, when every stone that you see right now is overturned. I want you to know that I told you about this, that I told you it was coming. And so I want to look at a couple of things that Jesus says to just help us with kind of an understanding of what is Jesus really, what, what is he saying is going to happen and what did happen? Last week, we talked about the widow who gave her coins within the temple treasury. And, and we talked about the importance of understanding that story within context, that a good biblical tool for us is when we go to the Bible to study it, we want to look at a particular passage. You want to look at what was said before that and what was said after that. Because often the writer is weaving a theme, a thread through the story, through the, through the illustrations to help you understand something. The tool that I would offer you in this particular passage is this. Not only are we looking at context, but what did Jesus audience, what did the original hearers of his words, how would they have understood this? How, how do we get inside this generation and listen to what Jesus is saying? Because Jesus says this in verse 30, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And so before we take Mark 13 and just push it all the way to a future event for us, it would be important to say, can we make Mark 13 fit within a context for Jesus' audience and hearers to understand it in their time, in their setting? And I would offer you yes. That when we look at Mark 13, we say things like, well, what do we know? We know this. The temple in Jerusalem was 
has, was destroyed in AD 70. Then we know this when Jesus spoke this, it was just a few decades later that the temple was actually destroyed. That Nero started a campaign against Jerusalem in AD 66. And in AD 66, there were lots of things that were recorded that were unique, that were supernatural. It's recorded by Jewish historians that, that there was a comet that stayed in the sky over Jerusalem during that year, that there was an earthquake or rumbling that was heard by those in the temple, and actually a voice that spoke within the temple telling the priests to leave, to exit. Nero began the campaign in 66, shortly died after that, and there was a succession of Roman emperors. And in 68, the battle was kind of drawing to a close. Jewish zealots could no longer defend the city any longer. And so as the emperor Vespasian took kind of power, he gave his son Titus the role of giving Jerusalem the death blow. And so Titus came in in AD 70 and decimated and sacked Jerusalem, destroying the temple. It says that 600,000 historians estimate 600,000 Israelites were killed in the destruction of the temple. And yet, many historians say that many Christians, there were very few, if any, Christians that were killed. I had a friend point this out to me just earlier this morning. He's like, isn't it interesting? A lot of times when cities are under attack, everybody kind of retreats into the center of the city and is kind of guarded and defends the walls. But in this particular situation, Jesus says, when Rome, when the temple is being destroyed, flee, run to the mountains, leave the city. And so what you see here is in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. We know that. That happened. Jesus said it would happen, and it did. And so then Jesus, what do we make about this comment Jesus makes about the abomination of desolation? What is that? And how do we understand that? And it's a term used within the book of Daniel to describe something kind of sacrilegious done unto the Lord. And Jesus says in Mark 13, 14, he says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand then. Let those who are in Judea flee, run to the mountains. Now, the book of Daniel was an extremely popular book in Jesus' day. And it was a book filled with dreams and visions of God kind of rescuing his people, of God kind of taking his people from a time in which they were suffering, bringing a particular leader onto the scene, one that we call the son of man, like the son of man, and this son of man kind of being vindicated through a time of suffering, even of himself, and kind of bringing God's people to a new place of victory, securing God's people to a new kind of, a new kind of freedom. But this abomination of desolation, it's an interesting term. It means, again, something sacrilegious done unto the Lord. Ten years after Jesus said this, ten years Gaius Caligula became the emperor and he attempted to have a statue of himself placed within the temple, which would have been incredibly uh, uh, sacrilegious, would have desecrated the temple, but Caligula was killed. He was assassinated. But we do know this, 30 years later, when the temple was destroyed, Titus brought a Roman standard into the temple and placed it right in the center. So we see that even this kind of curious term of abomination that causes desolation that Daniel references of some moment that would happen within the temple that would be incredibly sacrilegious, incredibly irreverent 
to God and for God's people, something within the temple, we see Rome setting itself up as divine, as the one to be worshipped, right in the middle of their worship to the Lord. Daniel chapter 7 is really the center of this book as it talks about this leader, this one like the Son of Man. And interesting enough, Jesus is often called the Son of Man. That title of being the Son of Man from Daniel is often one that's laid on top of Jesus. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Again, I'll say there's all kinds of thoughts about Jesus coming in the clouds and when does that happen and where does that happen and how do we understand that alongside the temple and alongside the second coming. But let me show you something interesting that Daniel says here that's important for us. He says, like a son of man coming with the clouds, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Now what you begin to see is what's important in Daniel, this coming of the son of man is an upward movement, not a downward movement. That the Son of Man comes from the point of view of the heavenly world, from earth to heaven. So if Jesus is saying that all of these things are going to happen within this generation, if he is preparing the disciples and God's people to see some massive destruction, something that is an end of the times type of experience with the Son of Man coming in the clouds from earth to heaven, as Daniel says, well, Where does that happen? Where do we see the Son of Man ascend? It's after the resurrection. And it's the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus that vindicate him as the true Messiah, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, that all the way through Jesus' ministry, everything that he said that he would do and accomplish on the cross, even his death on the cross, we're uncertain as did it really happen? Did Jesus really accomplish all of what he said? Did he really die for the sins of the world? Who knows until the resurrection. But the resurrection validates that the cross is true. That we can, we can depend upon the cross. The cross is trustworthy because Jesus is alive and seen for who he is in his divinity, in his authority. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. So I just want you to see that there's more happening here. Even little things like the, the moon being blotted out and earthquakes at the crucifixion or, or leading up to the temple. Again, earthquakes and comets. And I, I just want you to see like what Jesus is saying within Mark 13 has a way of being accomplished through these years up from Jesus' ascension to the temple destruction. So it's the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and even the destruction of the temple that then send the gospel out to the nations. And it all happened within that generation. So if that's the case, if we see a lot of what Jesus is saying in Mark 13 as something that has happened within God's people within a certain period of time, well, what is there for us, right? What, what is there for us to glean and for us to learn? what we begin to realize is this event still rumbles forward. This destruction of the temple has significance for us as God's people. And the destruction of the temple is a foretaste and a small part of what we will ultimately see in the second coming of Christ where Jesus comes in full authority and judges the world and gathers the elect finally. 
And so this is what we begin to realize. There's something more happening here. And Jesus tells the disciples now that something incredible, something hard, something that you are going to feel like is the end of the world is coming to you. But I want you to know about it in advance. That's what Jesus is doing in Mark 13. The temple of all things is going to be destroyed. And I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to lose heart when it does. God is not still, God is still over it. God is not on a break. All has not been lost. And the application of that, of what Jesus is saying to the disciples, for you and I today is God knows your worst day. God knows it. The thing that you are going through or will go through that will leave you thinking this is the end of the world. I'm done. Can God be trusted? Is there anything good that can come out of this? And what you begin to see is what Jesus is saying is yes. That this this movement of while the temple is being destroyed and while you're being arrested, you are going to stand before kings and authorities and governors and you are going to witness to exactly who Jesus is that God is using actual trials and actual difficulties in your life and my life to accomplish things that simple obedience won't. Hardships and trials They move us, they shake us, they dislodge us, they disentangle us in ways that God then uses that in our lives to accomplish something greater. God sprinkles salt, if you will, Christians, salt and light through the world in the the most difficult places to reach through difficulties, through trials, through difficulties. And this is, this is what Jesus is telling the disciples, and I want you to hear this too. If you find yourself today someplace that you never thought you would be, if you find yourself far away from the dreams and hopes and goals that you thought you would achieve, if your life is a catastrophe and falling apart, one purpose still remains, that you would be a witness to Jesus in that moment. That's what verse 13 says. This will be a time for you to bear testimony out of difficult times the gospel advances. It was the destruction of the temple that actually sent the disciples, sent the church farther past Israel and Jerusalem, Judea. It it sent them worldwide. It moved the gospel outward. And I want to say that the things that you're walking through, the difficulties that you are facing, There are moments for you to be a witness. There are moments for you. Trials and suffering is like a megaphone to your praise or to your despair. It's in those moments where people listen. When things are going, when things are difficult. Listen, God does not have a pain-free plan for your life. But he does have a plan. It is not pain-free Listen to what he's telling the disciples. You're about to get arrested. You're about to be beaten, thrown in prison. Your life as the way you know it in a a few short years is going to be turned upside down. And the thought that we have at times, I know we can pick this idea up, is that because of what God did through Jesus, it's just going to make my life easier. 
That's not true. And Jesus wants you to know that. So that when the difficult days do come, you realize that you have a God who is still trustworthy. You have a God who's still over that. You have a God whose plans are still good and still persevering. And there's still a work that God is doing in your life for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's, that's the confidence that Jesus is trying to pour into the disciples. And that's what you need to hear as well, is this event did happen. I love, why, I love that we have this of Jesus saying the temple is going to be destroyed and then we can look in history at AD 70 and see that it was because it addresses this kind of skepticism in all of us is can I really trust Christianity? Can I really give my life to Jesus? I mean, feeding the 5,000 and walking on water and like it's a lot to take in, all these miracles. What if I told you that Jesus said, historically, the temple is going to be destroyed, and then a few short years later, it was. That he gives us a prophecy, and we see its fulfillment. So that we know that God's word is a foundation for us, that the rest of the world may be fading and passing away, but God's word will last forever. And you can hold on to that, and you can build your life upon it, and it's good, and it's trustworthy. Maybe that's what you need right now. Maybe you're listening to this and you're going like, I, I want to be able to believe in a God who is over even the most difficult of my days. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm telling you that. I'm showing the disciples that in this moment so that you would know that for your own life. If you want to know a God who is trustworthy, Jesus is making that available to you, inviting you to himself to believe him in this way that when everything feels like it's falling apart, Jesus still has a plan. Jesus is still using even the destruction of the temple to bless the world and to change it. And so he says, so be ready for that. Be alert. Don't be caught off guard. He continues in verse 32. But what about the day or hour? No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. So be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells, them, and tells the one at the door, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. You know, the destruction of the temple, it was a foretaste. It was a kind of a, a micro expression of a larger judgment that will come when Jesus returns, when he comes again. And his words to us are this, is Jesus says, life will go on just like normal. Like you won't even know when it's going to happen, but then it happens. And so don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Every, I think it's every year, our car, our cars get broken into in our driveway. We just have a very popular cul-de-sac. Or the guy just knows we don't lock our doors very often. And I thought about this. It just happened a couple weeks ago. Jennifer was looking around the house for a backpack. And she said, hey, has anybody seen my running backpack? And I'm like, we were like, no, no, no. She said, ah, I guess it's gone. Like, it, I left the car open. And I guess I, it's gone. I thought, well, what if, what if we knew that whoever breaks into our cars seemingly annually was coming tomorrow, 1.30 in the morning. What would, wonder what I would do. What, what would you do? 
If you knew somebody was going to break into your car, steal your wallet, steal your laptop, grab your favorite sunglasses, you'd do something, right? You, you might be by the water hose at 1.29 a.m., right? You might backseat of the car with an air horn. I don't know. Have fun with it. You might just lock your doors. That's a simple approach, too. <laughs> just lock the doors. But you'd do something. And this is what Jesus is trying to invite us into is that life will move forward just as a normal day and then it will happen. Just like the destruction of the temple will just happen, so will Jesus' second coming. So will he just show up. And the question is, Jesus is inviting us into is he's encouraging the subs. How are you living? How are you being ready? How are you using your days? Listen, Jesus is not saying in Mark 13, now I want you to go home and I want you to sit down and I want you to write out a prophetic timetable of the Lord's second coming. What he's saying is, I want you engaged. I want you witnessing. I want you leveraging your life for the kingdom because there's going to be a moment where, where Jesus returns, where the owner returns, and I don't want you to be surprised. So we don't have time, church, to assimilate into a culture that is fading and passing away. We're here to be committed and faithful. We're here with a particular set of days, each one of us, to be on mission. And what we hear is this, that the gospel needs to go to all the nations. And so you don't know when Jesus is going to come back. You don't know when the next gospel conversation is going to come your way. But are you ready? Are you alert? This is, what, this is the opportunity that we have. We hear this in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, that if you endure to the end, you will be saved. Stand firm till the end, persevere and win your soul. And what they're saying within this passage is it's not your first day that's important, it's your last. It's not the day you were born. It's not the day you got your driver's license. It's not the day you graduated college. It's not the day you got married. It's not the day you had kids. It's not the day you had grandkids. It's not even the day that you gave your life to Christ. What Jesus is inviting us into is to make your last day the most important day. How are you living today, this day? Are you alert? Are you on guard? Are you leveraging this time? Because we know that it's passing. We know that it's short. If Jesus were to come back tomorrow, how would you change your day today? What would be different? Look at your planner, look at your agenda. What would change? Church, this is what we get invited into. We have a God who is over it all, who is using, using even our darkest and worst terrible catastrophes to do something in it for the kingdom. The kingdom of God is advancing and the opportunity for you is to be part of it or not, but it's advancing. God is accomplishing his purposes. God will come and God will have the gospel preached to the nations and Jesus will return, but will we be asleep or will we be ready? Let's pray. Just ask, what would you do today if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? For some of us, for some of us, the answer to that is 
to ask Christ to be my Lord and Savior today. To trust him. To give him my past. To give him my present. To honor him with my future. Whatever days I have. To hand them to Jesus for his glory. Because of his great work on the cross. To die for my sins and for the sins of the world. For him to come and to be the great liberator and to secure my freedom, not just in this life, but for eternity. To be forgiven and declared righteous because of his obedience and not mine. To place my faith in him who was rich but became poor so that the poor might become rich. To count yourselves to count yourself as one of them who would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. God, I pray that that would be true for many today. For others in the room, it's how do we begin to leverage our days, our moments for the gospel, to be alert and to be engaged, to not know when, Christ, that you will return, but to find ourselves on watch, on point, not asleep. God, help us to disentangle from all those things that kind of cause us to retreat, that make us lazy and ineffective. God, begin to address, help us by your spirit to begin to touch the things or make us aware of the things that have kind of entangled us rather than really freed us as sojourners and aliens in this world. God, let us be liberated people living for your purposes, being on mission, being witnesses everywhere we go to the glory and beauty and wonder of Jesus. The temple, it was this localized place of God's healing and restorative work within the world. But when Jesus comes, Jesus will be that place. And he will embody all of God's redemptive work, all of our hope, all of the healing that we long for. That Jesus sits in the heavens right now, the right hand of the Father, and there will become a day where he will come to earth and his rule and authority will be experienced in full. And he will take everything wrong and it will fade away and he will make a new heaven and a new earth and make all things new for his glory. And he will come in a cloud that will permeate all of creation and he will indwell with us and we will be in his presence forever. Jesus, come. Make us ready for that moment where we fully see you face to face, living a life of obedience and sacrifice, trusting you, full of faith today. Let us build our lives upon you.